let's wait for our pastor to get down. <laughs> well, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you this Sunday morning, Family Sunday, as we like to call it, and we need to pray. <clears throat> Lord, I come before you as your humble servant. Lord, I use me this morning. Holy Spirit, humble me. Let the, not, let the people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you, Lord. Move me out the way. Give your people eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful truth that is in the Gospel of John. I pray for clarity. Lord, I pray that I stand on your word and your word alone, not my intellect, not the things that I can say or bring to the table, but only on your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 7 as we will be wrapping up our series, I like to call it, uh, Who is Jesus? Or you can just call it John chapter 7. The question I have before you is Have you ever been invited to something? I'm sure many of us have. It's it's actually sort of a silly question to ask someone or even to ask oneself. We can all think of a time when we when we have been invited to something by someone, how that event was a good event to go to and how much fun you had. But we as humans all love invitations though, don't we? Or some of us. There's a certain joy that comes over you when you receive an invitation. It makes us feel special because the person that's inviting you wants you to be a part of something that he or she getting together. It makes us feel like we are wanted. It makes us feel like we are accepted by others. For women, practically anything that they get invited to, they're going. For men, as long as there's food, and a TV, they're going. For children, as long as there's toys and, and fellow children that they can play with, they're more than likely are going. Or if you bribe them and say, well, if you go to this, then I'll buy you something. Then they'll go. That's what my parents used to do with me. And you don't necessarily have to like the person who's inviting you. But we've all been taught that it's just good manners to show up. It's common courtesy because they went out of their way to invite you, so you should go out of your way to go to whatever they're having. Some of us, like me, for example, are even surprised when you receive an invitation because you don't see yourselves worthy enough to be a part of whatever's going on. Or you might think to yourself, that person still remembers me? I thought she hated me. I thought he hated me. And invitations come in a myriad of different ways, as we know. It can be through an email. It can be through mail. It can be through text message. Or it could be verbally. 
And typically the invitation involves something that grabs the person's attention. It could be a picture of something or someone. It could be in bold lettering or bright colors. It can be this small or this big. But what if you got an, an invitation? What if you got invited to something that would dictate where you would spend eternity? What if you got the most important invitation that one could ever receive from the most important person who ever lived? Would you accept the invitation? Would you clear your entire schedule to go? Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see many invitations given to people. The first we see is an invitation that he gives to his disciples. As Jesus tells them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus inviting the masses to come to him to eat, to drink. And today we will see one of those great invitations. J.C. Ryle said concerning our text today, It's been said that there are some passages in Scripture that deserve to be printed in the letters of gold. And such passages and verses before us form one that contain one of those wide, full, free invitations to mankind, which make the gospel of Christ the good news of God. And today we will see one of those golden invitations of our Lord. And this invitation will not be through mail. It will not be through email. It will not be through a text message. But Jesus will personally invite anyone and everyone who has ears to hear, to come to him and drink. This invitation will not be in bold colors or large print writing, but with a simple shout from his voice so that everyone could hear the good news that salvation has come. So far in the Gospel of John, we've been seeing the various reactions of the people, and we've seen the people ask one simple question. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? Some thought he was from Galilee. Some thought he was from Nazareth. But the consensus was, who is this man? To Jesus' brothers, he's not the person whom they want him to be. He's not the person whom they desire him to be. They want him to be the political Messiah that would lead Israel with a sword. The people at the Feast of the Tabernacles were divided on who Jesus is. Some said that he's a good man, while others said that, no, he's leading the people astray. To the crowds at the Feast of the Tabernacles, the ones who have come from different parts of the land to Jerusalem to this feast, Jesus is a man whose intellect is second to none. Remember, as they said, how has this man had such, have such learning when he's never studied? He's never been to any of the rabbinical schools. So where does he get all this learning from? To the citizens of Jerusalem, Jesus is a bold as a lion. Because they marveled at Jesus because of what he said to their leaders. The very leaders that they're afraid of. As they said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking publicly. And they say nothing to him. And then we have, of course, the Pharisees who hate Jesus, the legalistic hypocrites 
who just want Jesus dead. They want Jesus to shut up. It's been an amazing journey so far in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've learned many wonderful truths about who Jesus is, but also about ourselves and how we should view Jesus, how we should worship Jesus. But now we are at the last day at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's been a week-long celebration, as you remember. And the people at this moment are confused about who Jesus is. Is he this? Is he that? Is he the Messiah? Is he a fake? There's much muttering going on on who Jesus is. Jesus has already rebuked most of the people there. And I'm sure many of the people are angry with him. And the Pharisees are just completely fed up with this man. So they send people to arrest him. And that's where we left off last week. The climax is now building. The drama of the story at the Feast of Tabernacles is now unfolding. So with all eyes on Jesus, he will now take center stage. And with a thunderous voice, Jesus will speak light into the darkness. Today we will see two things. First, the great invitation from our Lord. And second, the reaction to the invitation. And let's stand for the reading of the word. John chapter 7, verses 37, all the way down to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as of yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officer said, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does, that does not know nothing about the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who had gone before him before, who had gone before him before, and who was one of them said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You may be seated. Now, like I said, we are at the last day. It's been a week-long celebration. Many things have happened. Many sacrifices have been shown. And if I could paint the picture for you, 
The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate the time when God had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. As God told Moses in Leviticus 23, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So every Jewish male had to attend. These booths that were to be made were to be three-sided. And there would be an opening somewhere, usually in the middle, signifying God's protection over the people. Signifying God and his gracious hand covering the family or whoever's in the booths. For the past seven days, priests will go down to the pool of Shalom. We know this pool because it's the same pool Jesus healed the paralytic man. But they would go down to the pool of Shalom in a religious procession with large water jugs. And there at the pool of Shalom, they would fill the water jugs, then make their way back through the streets of Jerusalem, walk up to the steps leading to the Temple Mount, commemorating the long-anticipated promise given to the prophet Isaiah. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, I will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And as the priest would walk down the streets with these large water jugs. The people would start singing psalms. Such as Psalms 113. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. And his glory above the heavens. Who is like our Lord? Who is seated on high? Who looks down Far down on the heavens and on the earth. And the streets would be filled. Massive amount of people would be singing songs, praising the Lord. It would be as if you were at a, uh, one of those, at a parade. Just a massive amount of people. And instead of boats and, and floats going down the streets, it would be the priests holding these water jugs walking down the streets. The people would praise the Lord by waving palm branches. Then the priests would then pour the water jugs over the altar. And as they dripped down onto the pavement, it reminded the people of how God had miraculously provided water in the wilderness. And will also one day pour water from heaven on their thirsty souls through the Messiah. This is what's all going on at this time. For the past seven days, that's the scenery. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. The ceremony of water, celebrating God's provision over his people, and a looking forward to the coming Messiah. The stage is now set for the one who was promised to make his voice be heard by all. The very person who the feast is about 
is about to speak. And this time it will not be a rebuke to the Jews. This time it will not be a rebuke to the crowds or to his brothers or to the citizens of Jerusalem. But rather this time it will be an invitation. An invitation to the masses, to everyone who has ears to hear. To all the people who he has rebuked. And as the priest pours the water one last time, he then will raise his hand for silence. And the people will begin to hush. And I believe that it's at this moment, at this climax of the feast, Jesus stood up and he shouted, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine being there at this time? All eyes are now focused on the Son of God. Jesus says that water that's being poured out is temporary. But if you want everlasting water, then anyone who is thirsty Come and drink. There are three words that pop out in that little verse we have. The first is anyone. The second is thirst. The third is me. Jesus echoes what the prophet Isaiah said. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that do not know you should run to. Because your Lord, your God, and the Holy One of Israel, for you has glorified you. And I can imagine what Jesus Thinking at this time, as Isaiah 6 says, verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is Jesus' invitation to lost sinners who are hopeless. Jesus' invitation is to those Jews whom he rebuked. To those Jewish crowds whom he said didn't know the Father. If anyone... If any of you Pharisees that want to kill me, if any of you officers that were sent to arrest me, if any of you pilgrims who marveled at my words, if any of you Jewish citizens who don't know God, we see Christ's love and compassion for sinners here. This is a universal call. This is the general call. That word, anyone, stretches as broad as the sea. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
This is the same general call that we see in John 6. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. We see the same thing in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is what we call the free offer of the gospel. All who are invited to, to believe, all are invited to hear. This is not an invitation that we receive from our buddies. This is not an invitation to a wedding. This is not an invitation to a baby shower or to a football game. This is an invitation for eternal life. This is an invitation to escape the wrath of God. This is an invitation to live. But it's also an invitation to die. This is an invitation that we give out to the masses. That we share to every creature. Regardless of predestination, election, reprobation. In which none of us know. We call out to all creatures and we point them to Christ. As Paul says in Romans 10, how are they to believe in him whom they not have heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? This is why we must go just as Christ went. Notice how it says in the beginning of verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out. Normally in those times, teachers would sit down and teach. They would sit down and speak. But here we read, Jesus stood up to make his face be seen by all. And he shouted out at the top of his lungs to make his voice be heard by all. If anyone, there's a sense of where Jesus knew that his voice must be heard. He knows that after this great day, people will go back to their villages and will go back to their towns. So with urgency and emergency and with fervency, he raises his voice. The greatest evangelist who ever lived, George Whitfield, said, I love those who thunder out the word, thunder out to the world. The Christian world is in a deep sleep and nothing but a loud voice can awaken them out of it. Sometimes it's good to be loud if it's for a good cause. May we speak with that same voice in our evangelism. May I encourage you just to evangelize alone. But when you do evangelize, be like Christ. Knowing that Sinners are dying and going to hell. Knowing that people have a first class ticket to hell. Knowing that people are lost and if they don't put their faith in Christ, God's wrath will be poured out upon them. We speak with that same urgency to our children. We speak with that same urgency with our best friends. But what about the people you don't know? Do you speak with that same type of urgency and emergency that if anyone is thirsty, I can point you to the well. I can point you to someone who is greater 
than these fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer. May we speak with this tone of urgency in our voice, with boldness and confidence as we preach the gospel to every creature, to tell them that there is a well that springs forth eternal life. The next word we see is thirst. In Exodus 17, God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff. And out of that rock, water will flow out and quench the people's thirst. That rock is what provided water for the people of Israel. But that rock was only a type. That rock was only a symbol. That rock was only a shadow of the true rock, which was to come, Jesus Christ. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 10, And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed from them. And that rock was Christ. So when we see Jesus stand up at the feast, and when he declares himself to be the source of the one who was promised, the one who was the living water, he is declaring that he is the Lord who was in the midst of Jerusalem in the wilderness. Jesus is saying, simply put, I was with you then. I was the one who provided water for you people. I know you want to hate me. And I know some of you do hate me. And I know some of you do want to arrest me. And I know some of you do want to kill me. But I provided for you, for your forefathers. I was with you in the wilderness. I was that rock that Moses struck. I provided water for you. Jesus is saying, I was the one who stretched out my hand in mercy and in grace and provided for you and your children. I was the one who kept you and preserved you. I was the one who used a man named Moses to deliver Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And here I am now as Moses' successor, leading you out of another exodus. I didn't come to condemn you, Israel. I came to rescue you. Moses led his people out of political bondage. But here, Jesus says, I have come to lead my people out of spiritual bondage. I came to rescue you in spite of you for your sins and for your deserved punishment. It was me who defeated Pharaoh. And now I have come to crush the head of the snake. I was with you then. But glory be to God, because now I am with you in the flesh. We meet again, but now it's face to face. And I'm looking at all of you people who I preserved in the wilderness to now come to me. And I will preserve you once again. If anyone thirsts, to be thirsty is to recognize your spiritual deadness. It is to acknowledge that your spirit is an empty well. It is to see yourself as a hater of God and a lover of your sin. It is to say to yourself that you need to drink from something that doesn't last for a temporary moment. The things that the world offers to satisfy us. To suppress our cravings. 
If anyone is thirsty, if anyone's soul is parched, if anyone's hearts are dry, are you thirsty this morning? Do you thirst for a better job? More money equals more wealth? Do you search for power? For children, do you thirst for your child to finish school? For children, there's not much in here, but ask your children, do you thirst for popularity? Do you thirst to be known? As we learned last week, our culture is full of the desire to be known. MySpace, Facebook, all those things. But are these your main priorities? Are these the things that you long for and that your soul is parched for, that your lips are dry over? Is your soul quenched by drinking the empty wells of this world? Do you find satisfaction and refreshment in that, as many people do, even Christians this day? Are you like the Israelites who praise God for a temporary water that only provided limited drink? But we see here Jesus is forcing the people to look deep within themselves, to look past material things at their deepest need, which is him. Everyone longs to be reconciled back to God. Everyone is trying to find a way to get back into communion with Holy God. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Which leads to the third word, which is me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. This word, we see the words, let him. Which signifies that this is an individual coming. Grace doesn't run in families. My daddy was a preacher. He was an evangelist. But I didn't want God growing up. I know kids who used to go to this church whose mommy and daddies are amazing men and women of God. But they're nowhere to be found Sunday morning. Grace doesn't run in families. God doesn't elect families. He elects individuals. Let him come to me and drink. Not come to the water cooler. Not come to the drinking fountain. Not go to 7-Eleven and get your water on. But come to me. Him being the source. The offer of the gospel is not to point people to the benefits of Christ. It's to point people to Christ. This is very different from what we see in evangelistic sermons and rallies. They point to what you can get from Christ. They point to the different benefits you can receive from Christ. If you come to Christ, he'll heal your marriage. If you come to Christ, he'll give you a new car. If you come to Christ, he might give you a raise. But Jesus is not saying any of those things. Matter of fact, he's not even promising any of those things. 
He's saying, if you come, you are coming to me. Many points of the benefits of Christ rather than Christ alone. But here, Jesus does not say, if anyone thirsts, come with me. He does not say, if anyone thirsts, come and I will show you. He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the source. Again, J.C. Rowell pointed, he who thirsts and wants relief must come to Christ himself. He must not be content with coming to his church and his ordinances or to the assemblies of his people for prayer and praise. He must not stop short even at his holy table or rest satisfied with privately opening his heart to ordained ministers. Oh, no. He he who is content with only drinking these waters shall thirst again. He must go higher. He must go further. Much further than this. He must have personal dealings with Christ himself. Those who are thirsty. Sitting in church Sunday morning isn't good enough. Believing intellectually that there is a God and listening to church music and occasionally praying for your food isn't good enough. But you must go to the root and to the source of it all, which is Jesus Christ. How many times in our lives have we tried to quench our thirst from other outside sources? Just to find out that it never fulfilled eternal satisfaction? Because we often correlate sin with satisfaction, sin with pleasure. So we've told ourselves if we just got into a mind-alterated state, if you catch my drift, or if I was in relations with many people from the opposite sex, then I would be happy. Or this beautiful woman, our beautiful man on the screen will satisfy me. <clears throat> what we see here is Jesus himself offering the one person who fulfills our needs, which is himself. Jesus is promising you everlasting satisfaction. The satisfaction that does not require sin. All it requires is for you to thirst and to hunger and seek and savor Jesus Christ. To see him far more glorious than anything and everyone. Do you realize that we were the Israelites at that time? That we were the ones who were wandering in the desert. And by God's common grace, before any of you were saved, he fed you. He clothed you. He gave you water to drink, but you were still sinners. But now he's offering someone who is far more greater, a person who will not only take care of your thirst problem and who has taken care of your thirst problem, but will also take care of your sin problem. The Jesus who loved his people for the foundation of the world. The Jesus who received a mission from the Father, and that was to redeem those people whom the Father has given to him as love gifts and to accomplish their redemption on their behalf. 
The Jesus who came to this earth and was rejected by his own. The Jesus who was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. The Jesus who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Jesus who went through all of those things for the Father's glory and for you. That's the Jesus who you are coming to this morning. That's the Jesus who you have came to. But if you have not, I urge you to come to Jesus this morning. Have you drank from the wells of Jesus? Meaning that have you recognized that you are so spiritually thirsty that you need to drink from him? Or have you came to Jesus and all this time you've been just merely sipping, but not drinking? Throw away the sippy cup. Throw away the bottle this morning. Go get yourself a keg and drink from Christ. Saints who are of the faith, I encourage you to keep and continually drink from Christ, knowing that he's the only one that can satisfy our deepest need. Let's move on. Jesus goes on to say, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now he said this, he said, now this he said because about the spirit, whom those whom he believed, those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is a prophecy by our Lord of the Holy Spirit, which was to come in its full measure. The living water that Christ is speaking of is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that dwells in those who believe at this very moment. The Holy Spirit who dwells in the believers and seals them for salvation. This is not to say that the Holy Spirit did not dwell in the people of the Old Testament. By any means, it didn't. It did. But at that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had begun to gift everyone and empower them in ways that had been limited to only select few in the Old Testament. Jesus here is prophesying that day. Jesus also makes a promise that those who believe in him will be satisfied with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And too often, Christians will devalue the Holy Spirit and call him a thing and say that this force is what gifts me to speaking in gibberish language. You know, his tongues. Or this force is what gifts me to heal people. Or this force anoints me with power. Instead of recognizing that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. He enables us to come to Christ. And he enables us to be satisfied in Christ. He's the one who sanctifies us, but also challenges us. He's the one who convicts us, but also lifts us up. We read in John 19.34, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the dead soldier pierced the side of Jesus. And out of Jesus' side flowed blood, but also water. 
St. Clair Ferguson said that it's from Jesus' wounded side that the satisfaction of our deepest needs comes. It's from Christ that the water comes and satisfies our deepest needs. As Moses struck the rock in the wilderness with his staff, it's a picture of the soldier wounding the side of Jesus. And just like in the wilderness, when that rock was struck, water began to gush out and satisfy the people. And like we see when the wounded side of Christ, water gushes out. And that water is the satisfying Holy Spirit that he gives to all of those who will believe. The Bible is amazing. Jesus took our thirstiness upon himself in order that our thirst might be quenched by faith in him. To those who are thirsty, he hands the thirst-quenching spirit that we may be satisfied in him forever. And we will never thirst again. Let's now look at the reactions to this invitation. Verse 40 on down, we see various reactions to Jesus' invitation. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, is this really the this is really the prophet others said this is the Christ but some said is the Christ to come from Galilee has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem the village where David was so there was a vision among the people over him some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid a hands on him the first group we see is in verses 40 and 41 these might have been true believers they might have been true confessors of the faith because they believe the words of Jesus, not the miracles, not his intellectual knowledge. We see in verse 40, the people said, certainly, which means genuinely, truly, this is for real the prophet. As Deuteronomy 18 prophesies Jesus' arrival, the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you from whom your brothers it is to him you shall listen verse 17 and the Lord said to him they are right in the way that they have spoken I will raise up from you a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded this is for telling a new prophet who would come and who would be like Moses, only greater. The people were convinced that Jesus was and is the prophet. Others said that this is the Christ, Greek word for the Messiah. This has to be the one whom we've been waiting for. These are the men who accepted the invitation that Jesus gave out. While others were skeptical about the claims of Christ, saying in verse 42... Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This hints again at the fact that the people did not know truly where Jesus was from. Remember in verse 27, the crowd said, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. But there were 
widely mistaken. Because Jesus was from Bethlehem. Remember reading from Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you come, out of you come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We also read in Luke 3, we see Jesus coming from David's line. Matthew 1 starts off saying, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is the one who was promised and is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. As God spoke to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod welded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Messiah has come. The one who will rule over all has arrived and whose kingdom will last forever. All the people again display their ignorance. They don't even bother to investigate Jesus' origins, but rather go off assumptions. We see that in the world today also. Atheists love to do this. Don't like to investigate but rather just assume from what other atheists say. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said, said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, no one, has ever, no one has ever spoke like this man. We have heard of these officers before. Do you remember? At the end of last week's sermon, these were the ones who were sent to the feast to arrest Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests were expecting these men to come in and have Jesus either handcuffed or beaten up. But the Pharisees, as we see, failed in their assignment. We can almost feel the anger of the Pharisees' words as they say, Why did you not bring him? And the officers could have lied and said, Well, you know, we didn't want to cause a riot. And you know that there's people that actually like this man. Or Jesus was surrounded by a, a mass amount of people, and it was sort of hard to get to him. But rather, the answer of why they didn't bring him was, no one ever spoke like this man. I mean, Pharisees, you should have heard what he said. He offered everyone a water that's far greater than the one that was given in the wilderness. He offered to quench our thirst, the same thirst that was quenched when he gave water to our forefathers. No one has ever made the claims this man is making, and he's backing them up. Mind you, no one ever will in history. I mean, he invited us to drink from him. These men were intrigued by the invitation, but the Pharisees weren't buying it. 
The Pharisees will release their frustration and say, Have you been also deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does know nothing about the law is accursed. In other words, you officers can't be serious. Are you as dumb as the crowds are? Do you not know the law? This man is a deceiver. He offered you living water? What is that? It's hard to convince closed-minded people when their minds are already made up. They've already made up their mind on who Jesus is. And that's what we see here. So they mock and scorn the officers. And they place themselves higher than everyone else when they say, Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? I mean, come on, guys. We know more than all of you. You don't see us falling for his trap. You don't see us following him. I'm reminded of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards at this moment where he said, resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, when no one else will, I still will live for God. No matter of who believes, no matter of who follows, if daddy didn't believe, if mama didn't believe, if best friend don't believe, if girlfriend, boyfriend, husband don't believe, wife don't believe, if children don't believe, I will believe. I will follow Christ. But here they're saying, do your homework, guys. This man is not the Messiah. But there was one who was doing their homework. An older friend makes appearance here. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had, con- who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? We remember Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the man who came to Jesus secretly at night, confessing that he is from God because no one could do the signs that he was doing. He came to him secretly at night, but now he's defending him in the open among his councilmen, the very people that hate him. The Pharisees have just said that the crowd does not know the law. Here Nicodemus questions their knowledge of the law. And says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? Nicodemus knows that killing Jesus is not right without first having a trial. And he's also urging his fellow councilmen to re- reconsider judging Jesus and to look into the law. Look into this man's claims. And like Jesus said, make a right judgment. What we see here in Nicodemus is God moving in his heart. That stony heart is beginning to soften. The wind is blowing over the dry bones of Nicodemus. And we'll learn more about what happens to Nicodemus in the coming chapters. Verse 52, the last verse, and we'll end here. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So now they must be thinking, Okay, Nicodemus, you must be best friends with this dude. You must know this dude from Galilee. Y'all must be homeboys. Because you know the law. You know what we believe. So why are you saying this stuff? Come on, man. He's deceiving everyone. No prophet comes from Galilee. However, a prophet was to come from Galilee. 
the prophet was to come from Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of the Naphtalin. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. The people walking, living in the darkness now should rejoice as we should. For the light of the world has come. As the great reformers once said, after darkness, light. So who is Jesus? He's the great divider, as we saw. He divided people as he went to this feast. The people wanted to know who he was, claimed to know who he was, but didn't really know who he was. Jesus is the man from heaven. He said that his teaching is not his, but from the one who sent him. And he's going back to the one who sent him, as we see today. And I present to you Jesus, the great inviter. He's the one who calls people regardless of social status, race, or gender. And offers them to drink and to eat and to live. We all should, or our affections I should say, should rise up anytime we hear this. And if your affections don't rise up, then maybe you need to check where your heart's at. Anytime we see the invitation of the gospel go forth, we should remember when the gospel went forth to us and how we were lost and and how God miraculously changed our direction. This is one of the great invitations of our Lord. As he, in six months, will make his way to Calvary. And there he will be put on the cross. And by his death he will conquer sin on the behalf of those who will believe in him. Could, be, could there be a greater invitation than that? Come and drink. Whoever is thirsty... Point them to Christ. Let's stand. As we partake the Lord's Supper this morning, I encourage you, those who are partaking the Lord's Supper, to just close your eyes at this moment and reflect on what's about to happen. Let us first examine if we have drunk from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us ask ourselves if we are satisfied only in him. And if not, let us bring that before the Lord's table this morning and ask if God will awaken our affections toward him by the means of his Holy Spirit. Let us look back at the redemption accomplished as our Lord paid the debt that we owed By that he satisfied the wrath of God. And on the cross, the worst about me laid upon him. The best about 
him laid upon me. And by faith in him, we now are offered reconciliation to God. Let the weight of Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of his people move us this morning to see him as our Savior and as our rescuer. Now let us look to the present as we apply that redemption at the Lord's table. As we fellowship and commune with God for he is presently here right this second. And finally, let us look forward to the age that's to come as we patiently await the arrival of our groom, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's partake of the Lord's Supper. We don't need music. Just worship God. Think about what he has done.